Welcome back, everybody. I'm Olivia, and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. So in the background today, you may hear my dishwasher. I made the mistake of setting it to run not too long before I started recording. And it is a loud dishwasher. I am in the back bedroom with a bit of a blanket wall set up, and you may hear it. I am also re-recording because I also made the mistake again of not checking to make sure my, uh, uh, the software was recording through my fancy podcasting mic. So, we're getting close to Coco's dinner time, so she may chime in a couple times as well. We'll find out. Alrighty, so today we are back in the ocean, as promised, and the ocean is a wacky and sometimes scary place for many reasons. And one of them is the number of directions that you can be eaten from. Yes, from the very depths of the ocean, but there's also the non-zero chance that you can just be dragged into the ground. And I really think that something that we don't appreciate enough living on land is that on land we can walk around and in general there aren't animals or anything that burrow into the ground that will grab you and drag you under. So sure, there are some trapdoor spiders and snakes that are pretty good at camouflage. So for their respective prey items, it might be a similar experience, but in my opinion, it's not quite on the same level as who we're talking about today. So imagine that you are a fish or an octopus or a crab minding your own business, looking for food, and then suddenly something grabs you from underground, pulls you into their hidden underground burrow, And in seconds, the ground has eaten you as far as you are aware. And then also imagine that that predator was a worm. As one source, factanimal.com, said very eloquently, is that on land, we are unlikely to be dragged underground by an explosive, snapping worm and consumed alive. What a time! So we have talked about worms before, but pretty much just parasitic worms, like the horsehair worms and the leeches that we talked about getting pretty close to about this time last year. So today we are talking about yet more worms, the bobbit worm, a kind of marine polychaete worm. Polychaete worms are aquatic worms, and most species are marine, living in the oceans throughout the entire world, even Antarctic, Arctic, literally everywhere there is ocean and sediments to live in, but there are at least some freshwater species as well. This group of worms is incredibly diverse, one of the most diverse of all of the invertebrates, with over 12,500 known species of polychaete worm, but this whole class is generally very understudied, so there are many more species to be discovered and also described even from things that we've seen before. Just in my own experience identifying polychaete worms over the last year, year and a half or so, there are some species of worms that can definitely be split up into multiple species. I know of at least one species of worm that, as a species, it's described, but it's actually known to be a species complex. So that would mean that there are actually several different species of worms that are referred to as that one species name, but they haven't really been studied enough to be divided into their own separate species or just for simplicity's sake, they've been kept their own. And there are other species that they've been uh, re-described multiple times. So a more recent description describes an entirely different worm from the original one, 
but both descriptions still sometimes bear the same name. It just depends on what your source you're looking at, which is super fantastic. So what are polychaete worms and where are they classified? Polychaete worms are segmented worms, which puts them in the annelid phylum with leeches, the herodinia. Many people are also familiar with earthworms, those are oligochaetes. The taxonomy of the phylum Annelida as a whole is just a mess, it's not just the polychaetes. But where we do know for sure things lie is that there are, uh, we do have a couple of uncertain groups, literally in Latin they're named uncertain. But polychaetes are their own class, so it's class polychaeta. And then oligochaeta and hyridinia are both orders within class clitolata, which refers to a collar structure that both orders have. The name polychaete refers to hair-like structures called CD that they all have in common. And there are some of them that do have the CD literally all over their body. And exactly how those CDs look for a worm depends on the worm exactly. Some of them, as I said, do literally have them all over like the sea mouse, but many do just have them in bundles of CD on structures called parapodia. Most polychaetes do have these parapodia, some of them do not, they've lost them, and the parapodia all look like paddle-like structures that the worm uses to help move it along the ocean floor. Polychaetes do have a wide variety of habits. Most are benthic and live somewhere along the ocean floor, some of them might crawl over top, others might burrow into the ground, some can burrow into sponges or coral reefs, and others still can be planktonic, and for those planktonic species, their parapodia are much often much broader, a bit wider to help with swimming. Some of these other polychaetes I'll probably talk about sometime in the future because, as I said, there is some incredible diversity. They do some interesting things. For example, one of them, one species of worm, was discovered living on hydrothermal vents and have some of the highest heat tolerance levels of any animal. And there are other worms that can live on and around methane deposits. Many polychaetes are also quite small, with most really only getting into a few inches long. And for many of the worms that I'm looking at, a few inches is big for a lot of polychaetes. Many of the ones I've seen are on the orders of millimeters, and it doesn't even make sense to use inches because you're at like three millimeters. But some worms can get up to 10 feet or about three meters, and that's going to be the worm we're talking about today. The bobbit worm is a large predatory worm in the Unicidae family of polychaete worms. We do have some unicids here in the Gulf of Maine, but the ones we have here are much smaller. Bobbit worms are all found in the tropics, both in the Atlantic, around the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, and then also in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Now, remember how I mentioned that worm taxonomy is a mess? It is such a mess that apparently we don't actually 100% know which worm species the name bobbit worm refers to, the uh, guy that collected the first bobbit worm named it bobbit worm before it had a scientific name. So um, when it was taken to the polychaete expert, uh, Christian Foschold, he worked at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History pretty much up until he died eight years ago. And he was like, as I said, the polychaete expert. He has hundreds of species to his name. 
that he has described and like a couple dozen, I think, that other people have named after him. So he was only able to get that specimen to the genus level, Unissi, and wasn't able to definitively get a species name. Genus was all he could get. So the general consensus, though, is that the worm originally collected and named Bobbit worm was most likely Unissi aphrodotoas. And so when you Google Bobbit worm, that's what comes up. But there are other scientists that say the name Bobbit worm should be applied more broadly to members of the Unissi genus that have a few characteristics. They can grow over 18 inches, they're ambush predators, and they have these super fun-looking double mandible retractable jaws. So you would think that this would leave really just a few species, and I guess on a fraction basis it does. There are 353 members of the genus as a whole, and these criteria would leave about 50 species as named bobbit worm. I know, Coco, it's dinner time. Um, but since general consensus for bobbit worm is Unissi avertitoas, that's going to be the one we're going to talk about as we get into hunting and feeding specifics. So let's talk about what this worm do, and then we can get Coco her dinner. What this worm does is, it mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it waits for food to come by, grabs it with its snapping jaws, drags it on the ground, and eats it alive, as one does. That's what Coco might wish she could do right now. She's a hungry kitty. When a bobbit worm is getting ready for the hunt, it will burrow all 10 feet of its body underground, except for the last few centimeters of the anterior head end. So its jaws will either be flush with the sediment or it'll be sticking out just a little bit. Bobbit worms, along with other members of the Unisid family, have five antennae on the head that they use to detect prey. They don't have any eyes, so they do rely entirely on their antennae to let them know when food is present. While they wait, they have their large jaws at the ready. Imagine something like an open pair of scissors and it's kind of like that. Their jaws are made up of two sets of scissor-like kind of serrated plates. And while they hold them open, it's full 180 degrees of potential energy. When the prey swims by a worm and trips one of the antennae sensors, the jaws snap shut to capture the prey. There have been some people that thought that maybe these worms also injected their prey with the venom to help incapacitate them. And I think that's because if you are a person that gets bit by them, it would hurt like heck. But unicid worms aren't actually known to have toxins, they just hurt. And really, they don't necessarily need venom to incapacitate their prey to help, like, protect themselves from getting injured. Because the force of the jaws snapping shut has been known to occasionally slice right through their prey. Fantastic! Once the prey is grabbed, they drag it underground into their burrow, and all of this happens, the detection, the grabbing, the dragging underground, in at most a couple of seconds. Like, there are videos of this and it happens in, like, a frame. So, who is on the bobbit worm menu? They mostly eat small fish and other worms, but they will also eat seaweed, and there is video evidence of them dragging the occasional octopus into their burrow as well, with varying amounts of success. Since they don't have eyes and rely on their antennae, as far as we know, it's not like their antennae can feel if something is a fish or a worm or whatever, so a lot of their feeding is going to be fairly opportunistic. 
it just so happens that most of what's going to be visiting the ocean floor where they're, I guess, hunting or more lying in wait for the ambush is going to be fish grazing on algae or worms that live in the sand, as well as other worms that are going by eating very much the same thing, like other algae or other worms. Now, fortunately, as people, bobbit worms really aren't much of a problem for us. Granted, I wouldn't want to be bit by one, but it's not going to take you down. If you're poking it, you might just lose a finger if you're unlucky. But where some people do run into problems with bobbit worms, though, is in saltwater aquariums. You can get what are referred to as live rocks for your saltwater aquarium, and small baby bobbit worms can hide in these rocks. And once they're in your aquarium, they grow up and cause problems for your reef tank community. Obviously, you don't want them in your aquarium because they will eat your fish, and you don't want that. But they can be hard to get rid of, partially because they can be quite sneaky. I remember seeing a, um, a video one time where it was people that like worked in an aquarium and they had fish in their tank spontaneously disappearing. And they were dealing with this for something like a couple of weeks before they managed to find the worm culprit because it just kept hiding in the rocks and the reefs. And these guys are also nocturnal. So the people are going to be in there primarily during the day when the worm is sleeping. So they're not, we're not really going to be around when this worm is hunting most of the time, like in an aquarium. So the other thing that can make them a little bit tricky is that they can do fun things like reproduce from segments. If you chop one of these worms in half, thinking that'll take it out, well, how unfortunate. Now you have two bobbit worms in your tank if you don't get the worm removed in time. So it really just takes some care and attention and perhaps some detective work to make sure you find the worm and remove it, which can be a hassle if you maybe don't have a whole lot of time to do worm detective. And with that, that is the bobbit worm. Now, as you go about your day, you can now think about how nice it is that you don't have to worry about you, your dog, or even the birds being dragged underground by a large worm to be eaten and never seen again. Thank you for listening and hearing about bobbit worms and tune in next week to hear about, I think, red kites are on the schedule next. I'll need to take a look at my calendar and get that re-sorted out so I'm not going on a week-by-week basis, but the red kite was requested. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Podbean, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes and be sure to rate and review. These are all great ways to support this podcast and help new people find it. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky on Facebook and Quirky, Creepy, Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all the pictures and updates on the podcast. Thanks to my sister, Kaylee Streit, for creating the theme music for the podcast. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.